HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right, Thursday, it's one o'clock, and once again, you have tuned in to the Heritage Radio Network. You are listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. And we are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today, we are on the line with Jim Garretson of Wood Prairie Farms. Uh, Jim is also president of the Organic Seed Growers and Trade Association. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Erin. It's nice to be here. So, Jim, we, we brought you on the show today. Um, you're heading down to, to New York City, uh, I believe, later last, next week for um, a series of events. But your, your group, the Organic Seed Growers and Trade Association, is uh, currently involved in a lawsuit with agri-giant Monsanto, um, basically ascertaining that farmers have the right to protect themselves from being accused of pat, um, patent, infringement, patent infringement by Monsanto. Um, and it was interesting, you know, um, taking a look at the suit and, and kind of taking a look at Man- Monsanto when you visit their website um, to kind of see how they describe themselves. They say, you know, if there was one word to explain what Monsanto is about, it would have to be farmers. It's our purpose to help them, farmers, meet the needs of a growing population. And I'm just curious um, how, how you may uh, describe them uh, differently. Well, um, what, what is interesting to me is that um, uh, the other day I was on the Internet and uh, came across an article that I'd read before, and Monsanto, of all the corporations in the world, Monsanto has been uh, rated the least ethical corporation. So uh, that being the case, anything that comes from Monsanto is something that I, I tend to not believe, and apparently a lot of people in the world uh, agree with me. Um, the fact is, uh, Monsanto has not been uh, the friend of the family farmer. Um, 
Uh, it's been documented that they have, <clears throat> on 144 occasions, taken farmers to court, suing them for uh, alleged violation of their um, <clears throat> uh, patents. And another 700 farmers uh, have been uh, had cases uh, settled out of court. And then an unknown number of farmers have received threatening letters from Monsanto uh, um, being accused of improperly uh, handling their technology. There's a good article if people are interested uh, about this uh, aspect of Monsanto's behavior, um, published about four years ago in the publication Vanity Fair. Uh, One can find this on the Internet. The title of the article is Harvest of Fear, and it's a good primer on the uh, techniques that Monsanto uses in rural America to maintain this discipline and compliance with um, uh, their view of the world. But uh, as an American farmer, I certainly don't look upon Monsanto as anyone that is doing any favor to me. And in fact, it's their uh, aggressiveness and their pollution through um, genetic engineering, uh, transgenic agriculture, that has caused uh, the plaintiffs in the farmers in our plaintiff group to file our lawsuit. Um, and that lawsuit is known as uh, Organic Seed Growers and Trade Association at Al v. Monsanto. And we filed uh, the lawsuit in March of 2011 in Southern District of uh, New York, which is Manhattan, uh, seeking, as you say, um, it was a preemptive lawsuit seeking court protection under the Declaratory Judgment Act that should our farms be trespassed upon and contaminated by Monsanto uh, transgenic or GMO seed, uh, that the court would protect our farmers from not having to defend ourselves from a patent infringement uh, lawsuit from Monsanto when uh, they may perversely claim that we are in possession of their technology due to that contamination. Uh, The fact is, we're not customers of Monsanto. We don't want their seed. We don't want their technology. We don't want their trespass. We don't want their contamination of our crops. And we most certainly don't want to lose our farms in an effort of trying to defend ourselves from a frivolous lawsuit claiming that we've taken their um, uh, their GMO technology. Well, I want to come back to to that issue of contamination, but before we do, I want to give my listeners a little bit more of a sense of, of who you are, and so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about Wood Prairie Farms and, um, you know, just a brief history of, of your farm and what you grow there. Yes. Um, my family and I have been farming uh, organically for 36 years, on our uh, small family farm in northern Maine. Um, We have an isolated farm. We're surrounded on three sides by the uh, north Maine woods, and that isolation is perfect for us to grow the organic seed crops that we uh, make our living from growing and selling. Uh, We've got a mail-order business so that we sell directly to home gardeners and uh, market farmers across the United States. We've got customers in all 50 states. And um, uh, so we raise organic seed, primarily organic seed potatoes. Uh, We're in the part of Maine uh, that used to be known as the potato empire, and uh, potatoes are still by far the biggest crop up here. And, in fact, uh, Roosa County has more potatoes grown in it than any other county in the United States. 
So this is big potato country, uh, and the climatic conditions up here allow farmers in Aroostook County to grow the highest quality seed potatoes in North America, and we sell them direct to our customers. So uh, we grow other seed crops in addition to potatoes, um, uh, crops like corn and uh, squash, um, peppers, and tomatoes. But the potatoes is the uh, uh, largest portion of what we grow and sell. And and just for those who may not know, what what is the difference between a seed potato and a potato I would pick up at you know the Union Square Farmers Market or or in a grocery store? Well, they would look very much alike. Uh, but potatoes are vegetatively propagated, which means that you take a potato and you cut it up into the appropriate size seed piece and you plant that in the ground. That's how. Uh, 99.9% of all the potatoes in the world are grown now. And um, the problem with the inherent problem within that um, system is that you can get transference of disease through the seed pieces. So there is a um, uh, system of seed certification set up so that we have inspectors come out to our farm uh, throughout the summer um, checking our crop for freedom from disease and the important reason for that is this, that um, uh, a crop that is loaded with disease will, in the next generation, um, can produce a significantly lowered um, uh, quality and yield of the crop. So um, producing high-quality seed uh, is very important for our customers, <clears throat> many of whom are market growers. Uh, they may be the farmers that uh, your listeners uh, buy from when they go to the, uh, uh, the farmer's markets um, but um, having good quality seed potatoes is, is the first insurance that you're going to get a good quality crop to be harvested. And uh, so the appearance is the same, but uh, the potatoes that we grow as seed potatoes are ones that uh, have been checked for um, uh, freedom from disease. And uh, they, they do tend to run small. Uh, if you've got a 100-pound bag of large potatoes and a 100-pound bag of smaller-sized potatoes, you'll find that the smaller uh, potatoes will plant more row feet, so it's more economical uh, to plant the smaller potatoes. So the seed potatoes, uh, for several reasons, are on the small side, which is what uh, a gardener or a farmer would want. Okay. And now you also um, play are the president of the Organic Seed Growers and Trade Association, and can you tell us a little bit about that organization and, and what type of work uh, you do? Yes. Um, uh, OSCADA, uh, Organic Seed Growers and Trade Association, we established about five years ago, and it is the trade association uh, for the organic seed industry, and it's comprised of uh, individual seed farmers, um, uh, organic seed companies, and organic seed breeders or professionals that work in the seed industry. So it's basically um, a great group for developing and strengthening and protecting organic seed. So when the uh, threat of GMO contamination uh, became clear to us, it was natural for us to get involved in this lawsuit, uh, which seeks to protect not only farmers from contamination, but actually to protect the right of citizens in our country to have, to have access to good, clean food. Um, in essence, if organic farmers are not protected in their ability to farm the way that they want on their farms, uh, those of us organic farmers that are raising organic seed, if we can't um, um, have our property rights respected and prevent companies like Monsanto from trespassing onto our farms 
and having their pollution contaminate our crops. There's no way that the organic farmers that buy seed from us can grow a crop that's not contaminated. If you start with contaminated seed, the crop that you harvest after planting that contaminated seed will be contaminated. And we believe that Americans should have a, a right of access to a future of some kind of food as an alternative to genetically engineered food, that it's their right uh, uh, of access and that that is why their uh, interests really are uh, at the center of the lawsuit that we have filed in federal district court. So I would say, um, my, my guess would be that most of my listeners, and I would include myself here, um, our understanding of how this con- contamination might happen is probably based predominantly on the movie Food Inc. that came out several years ago, uh, which, which profiled uh, a farmer who was involved in a contamination lawsuit from Monsanto. And so I'm, I'm curious how, um, how contamin- like what contamination would look like um, that would be different from that and how um, that kind of movie and movement played into or, or maybe didn't play into the, the suit that you're pursuing now. Well, um, uh, farmers uh, are all students of biology. We're working with biology day in and day out. It's, it's essential to understanding, uh, understanding biology to be able to grow crops successfully. The nature of biology is that um, uh, most crops go through a pollination period, and during that pollination window, uh, there is mobile pollen, uh, sometimes spread by the wind, sometimes spread by insect that can go off-target, off-site. And in the case of genetic engineering, uh, two of the six crops that have uh, been commercialized, and these are the large commodity um, uh, crops that are grown on millions of acres in this country, two of them are annuals, canola and corn. And the nature of those uh, two specific crops is that the, mobile, that the uh, pollen is extremely mobile and can grow, go off-site. So the problem is, uh, for example, in our case, uh, seed corn is one of the crops that we grow on our farm. <clears throat> if a neighboring farm were to grow Monsanto seed, uh, it is very likely that that pollen will travel from um, the farm with the Monsanto seed <clears throat> and that pollen come on to and contaminate our crops. And if that should happen, a couple of things, I guess, are a result. First off... Uh, genetically engineered contamination of an organic seed crop extinguishes the value of that organic seed crop because there is no market or demand for GE-contaminated organic seed. So uh, first off, it eliminates our livelihood of the crop that we're growing. But there's a second very perverse situation, and it's this. Within patent law, uh, there is no exception to the rule that Um, a patent holder has absolute rights uh, to that um, product that they've had patented. And the only way that another person can possess it legally is if they have signed a licensing agreement and paid royalty on it. Well, the organic farmers uh, within our plaintiff group, we're not customers of Monsanto. We want nothing to do with Monsanto. When their technology ends up on our, our farms, technically, we are in violation of uh, their patent rights because it doesn't matter uh, uh, whether there is intent 
it doesn't even matter matter whether there is knowledge of contamination. Um, um, the concept of possession is if we have it and we don't have the signed licensing agreement, we are in violation, and we are concerned that Monsanto will pursue us as they have other farmers for patent infringement should they contaminate us. So it's a very perverse situation. In this case, the innocent organic farmer is worried about being sued by Monsanto for patent infringement when they contaminate our farms, when they trespass from their side of the fence across the fence onto our land. And we've gone to court under the Declaratory Judgment Act uh, um, seeking court protection. And the Declaratory Judgment Act was a law that was passed by Congress about 30 years ago precisely for the situation that organic farmers find themselves in. We feel that we should not have to defend ourselves in court because we don't want their technology. We think that they should keep their pollution on their side of the fence and not let it contaminate our crops. So we've gone to court. We're going to be, once this case gets to trial, we're going to be um, uh, making our case uh, to the judge saying, our farmers should be exempt from any claim of patent infringement when Monsanto uh, should contaminate them. And some of the crops, like I say, corn and canola, the pollen is extremely mobile, and uh, the chance of contamination if your neighbor growing it is extremely high. And in fact, farmers within our plaintiff group have already suffered economic loss because they have abandoned, in many cases, growing crops like organic corn, and organic canola, and organic soybeans. And these are important crops that are either important rotation crops in terms of um, uh, income for the farm or in helping to maintain a, a high-quality um, uh, condition of the soil. Um, and it's, um, uh, it's something that farmers have uh, uh, not wanted to do, but in their best judgment, they've decided that the chance of contamination is so high and the fear that they have of being pursued by Monsanto is such that they've abandoned these crops. So the economic harm has occurred to our farmers. Ha has already occurred, and I think um, you're really touching on a lot of points for the potential uh, for that harm to, to grow in ways that we can't predict and, and can't control, similar to the technology that has been released and is essentially, in some ways, scarily, I think... Uh, beyond our control. Well, we are going to, um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to hear a little bit more about the, the people who have joined you in the suit and the Public Patent Foundation that, that's taken the suit up. So hold tight. We'll be right back with Jim Garrettson. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. 
Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. All right, we are back. Uh, You're listening to The Farm Report, and I am on the line with Jim Gerritsen. Jim is president of the Organic Seed Growers and Trade Association, which is currently involved in a lawsuit with the agri-giant Monsanto. And Jim, one of the things I I think is so interesting about how we kind of use the legal system to to create change and and to create uh, laws that protect um, and recognize the intricacies of like what's happening uh, on the ground is, is um, how do we like how, where do those things start? And I'm curious, you guys are working with the public patent foundation and how, how did you find them or how did they find you? I mean, how did you find yourself at the head of this important uh, suit? Well, uh, one of the farmers in our plaintiff group, um, uh, went to a lecture uh, that Dan Ravisher, uh, the lead lawyer from Public Patent Foundation, um, uh, one of the farmers went to a lecture that Dan uh, delivered at University of Virginia, his alma mater, and um, the farmer brought up to Dan uh, the situation that organic farmers find themselves in, to where um, we are under siege because Monsanto will not contain their pollution and that um, uh, we find ourselves in legal jeopardy of being sued. And, and the fact is Monsanto has an in-house legal staff of 75, and if any one of our family farmers were to be pursued for patent infringement, we could easily go bankrupt simply trying to defend ourselves from a frivolous lawsuit. So what we feel is that, you know, as I said before, we want nothing to do with Monsanto. We're not their customers. We want to be left alone. We want them to keep their pollution on their side of the fence. And if they are unwilling to do that, at the very least, we want the courts to give us protection so that we don't have to risk our farms by defending ourselves in court from a a false claim of patent infringement. We don't want to possess their technology. The fact is we don't want anything to do with Monsanto. We certainly don't want our crops contaminated by them. And can you tell us a little bit about um, the types of uh, organizations and other types of farmers that are involved in the suit? Are they regionally located, or or how does it um, kind of play out uh, for, for the other people involved in the suit? Well, it's a federal lawsuit because we have such a wide um, a range of, of plaintiffs. So I think we have representation from Oh, I think 26 or 28 different states and provinces in Canada are represented within the plaintiff group. When we filed this lawsuit in the spring of uh, 2011, uh, we had 83 plaintiffs. And those 83 plaintiffs were comprised of individual family farmers, independent seed companies, and agricultural or farm organizations. And if you take the combined memberships of all those groups, we have well over 300,000 um, citizens involved in this lawsuit, and that includes about uh, 25% of all the certified organic farms in the United States and Canada. And why do you think the suit hasn't been brought before? Well, uh, Monsanto uh, uh, has a bag of tricks, and one of the tricks is to stall uh, the lawsuits for as much as long as they can, and typically 
uh, the farmers run out of resources with which to uh, pursue uh, the case. So um, that's the technique that Monsanto is deploying in our lawsuit. Uh, We have yet to get this case to trial to uh, argue before the judge the merits of the case itself because Monsanto uh, is stuck on all of these pre-trial motions to try to prevent this case from getting to trial. So early on, um, in mid-July of 2011, they filed a motion to dismiss um, the case, saying that, listen, on our website we have a, a commitment that we've made to farmers, saying that we won't sue them for trace amounts of uh, GMO contamination when it comes onto their farms through um, uh, inadvertent means. Well, uh, about a month later, we filed uh, our rebuttal to that dismissal in which we rejected that, but I maybe should back up. Early on in the process, our lawyers from the Public Patent Foundation in Manhattan, they asked Monsanto to provide the plaintiffs with a binding legal covenant saying, guaranteeing that they wouldn't sue farmers should we become contaminated. And Monsanto refused to provide that to us. That leaves us with the only possible conclusion that Monsanto wants to reserve their option of suing us for patent infringement. So we felt that we needed to go forward with this case. Interestingly, they argued in their motion to dismiss that um, the farmers should um, uh, find their commitment on their website sufficient uh, assurance that they're not going to come after us. But look at this commitment. It's on a website. It's anonymously signed. Even if we were to believe Monsanto today, which we don't, what would prevent them from changing their website tomorrow? It has no legal binding. And in fact, here's what's interesting. They filed their motion to dismiss our case in mid-July, citing their commitment as a reason why we shouldn't be worried. Within one week of their filing the motion to dismiss in our case, in a completely unrelated case in Eastern District of Missouri, St. Louis, their home turf. They were pursuing a family farmer for patent infringement, and this farmer and his lawyer brought up this commitment from their website and said, Monsanto, you should not be suing me. Look at this commitment you have on your website. And Monsanto's own lawyers said that 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 commitment was vague. So in the one case, They're saying that the commitment is vague and has no meaning, but in our case, they're saying that we should um, uh, get satisfaction out of it, that they won't pursue us. And basically, they're trying to game the system, and our lawyers uh, included this display of inconsistency within our appeal brief that was filed in August of 2011. Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't, I guess it's, yeah, right to not take too much comfort in in those types of promises. And I'm curious, you know, uh, I can only imagine the amount of time and resources and and mental energy um, pursuing the suit has taken on you and your family and your farm. And I'm just curious, how how do you find the the kind of strength to to persevere in in the face of such a kind of legal and, uh, you know, worldwide why giant? I mean, what's your support network look like, and and how can people get involved in supporting your work? Well, there was an interesting article that was published in the last uh, oh nine months, maybe, 
and it indicated that worldwide there are one to two million people that are actively working to restrain Monsanto. So the farmers that you have in this lawsuit were just part of that, but it's a worldwide effort to really stand up to a biotech bully and to assert our rights to farm the way that we want to on our farms without threat of contamination, without threat of intimidation. And this is going on worldwide. There's a lawsuit going on down in Brazil now where the farmers are challenging Monsanto's collection of royalty fees for um, patents that um, uh, go against the law in Brazil. And, in fact, there was a a ruling uh, recently against Monsanto in that um, case. So I think that um, there are people that have seen that Monsanto is a terribly irresponsible corporate citizen uh, needs to be restrained from their pollution uh, of the environment and of crops that um, uh, are not their own. And we're just part of that. But, you know, we've been, um, we, we first heard about genetically engineered crops at a farm conference 25 years ago. Uh, in my case, it was when uh, Pat Roy Mooney from the ETC group uh, gave a, a talk at a conference that I was speaking at in, in Canada. And um, he told us this was in the mid to late 1980s about this new technology that was coming online called genetic engineering. So from the outset, we understood that this uh, crop, because of the mobile nature of pollen, was an instant threat to organics. So this has been on our radar screen and has been of increasing concern as the uh, acreage has increased. And this is because the federal government is really a dysfunctional regulatory body. There's a revolving door between the regulators who are making the decisions in the federal government. They come from the biotech industry, they stay for a few years in the federal government, and then they go back to the biotech industry. These are the same people that are making these decisions to deregulate these crops and allow farmers to grow them. And that is why the acreage has gone up greatly. So as the acreage increases, the opportunity for cross-contamination increases with it. And there are many, many, many more crops that biotech is trying to get the federal government to introduce um, or to um, deregulate so that farmers can grow them. Very common crops that uh, we use in everyday eating, things like lettuce and squash and cabbage. These are all um, uh, cars waiting at the train station for deregulation. So we felt... We need to fight Monsanto, and we need to challenge them now while the number of crops are still relatively limited in number and in, in that way in, in impact. If we don't fight them now, the contamination will become so widespread that, in essence, either the seed is going to be controlled by the monopoly that uh, Monsanto has created by buying up seed companies, or the seed is going to be contaminated by Monsanto transgenics and we're afraid that they're going to claim ownership of that contaminated seed as part of their patent rights. And we don't think it's right, and we're trying to help the country get back on the right track, get the U.S. Patent Office to do its proper job and not allow um, crops like these GMO crops to get patented. And that's, in fact, when we get to court, we have four separate self-standing legal arguments that our lawyers are prepared to uh, argue in court that will show that the patents that have been granted to Monsanto are invalid and that the U.S. Patent Office erred in issuing those patents. And um, that is how we will be proving to the judge that we are deserving of the court protection that we seek.
Well, Jim, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the show today and and thank you for your work uh, on this issue and wish you the best of luck. Um, and and just so, so people, if they're interested in following the case, um, visit the Wood Prairie Farms website, www.woodprairiefarm.com. They, they post updates there. Um, as I said before, the Public Patent Foundation is the legal team, and you can learn more about them and, and supporting them by, by visiting their website. Also, Jim will be in New York City if you're in the area this coming Monday and uh, Tuesday. He'll be doing a presentation and dinner at Jimmy's number 43 on Monday night starting at 6.30. Tickets are still available, and you can find them at Jimmy's number 43.com on Tuesday. Uh, Jim will be doing a farm walk with Ben Flanner of the Brooklyn Grange, and you can find tickets through the Brooklyn Grange website. They're $10. Um, and then on Tuesday night, I would recommend heading out to uh, 190 Dean Street in Brooklyn to Rucola. They're doing a dinner. Um, you can buy tickets at www.brooklyn.com. Um, it'll give you a chance to ask any follow-up questions of Jim and, and support the suit that he's working on. And if you can't make it to any of those events, please visit the website, www.woodprayfarms.com. This has been another episode of The Farm Report. Thank you so much for tuning in. Like all of our programs here on the HeritageRadioNetwork.org, this episode is available as a free uh, podcast through iTunes. You can also listen through Stitcher Smart Radio. If you have questions or want to follow up on more information from this show or any others, feel free to email us, info at HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right, once again, you've tuned into the Grow NYC Green Market Update, and we are on the line with Liz Corolla, who's going to give us all the news that's fit to print and gear us up for our weekend and weekday shopping adventures at New York City's Green Market. So, Liz, start us off. What's happening? What's new in the market? Great, thanks. Um, peanuts. So, peanuts are not an item generally available at our markets, but right now, Lonnie's Farm and J&A Farm, they sell at 97th Street. They're, uh, they have peanuts. It's really exciting. They're really fresh, so if customers buy them, they'll want to boil or roast them first before cracking into the shells. Boiled peanuts. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but uh, boiled peanuts are sold on the side of the road in the south and best eaten on road trips and 
long summer afternoons in a baseball stadium, but I'm looking forward to introducing them into my fall lineup of foods, and it's, it's really exciting to see a new variety of something show up at the market. Um, and I also want to reinforce what Jean said last week. There's a bumper crop of pumpkins this year, tiny ones, big ones, even bigger ones, decorative ones, ones good for steaming, roasting, making into pies. It is pie-baking season, so we've had... Um, Apple pies in the office this week. Markets are having cook-offs, and almost all the ingredients can come from the market. Butter, lard, flour, and, of course, the filling of your choice. So excited yeah. about that. Pumpkins, definitely something I think of every fall. I mean, the other thing I'm always thinking about is is apples, and I'm wondering if you have any apple recommendations for us. Great. Yeah, Jean um, was telling me that she ran into Chef Peter Hoffman from Back 40 and Back 40 West, of course, longtime Green Market supporter, um, ran into him in the market yesterday and asked what kind of apple he likes to eat this time of year, and his response was, I'm so glad you said this time of year. So it can change over the course of those few months as um, different varieties are getting harder harvested, but right now he he says Macintosh are great, Macoons and Empires, um, but for us, the key is really just to ask the grower or the farm stand worker what's good for baking, what's good for sauce, what's good for just eating raw, um, and Peter says he's loving the orange Cox Pippin from Samascot Orchards. Um, personally, I don't love a super sweet or super tart apple, so I often go for the heirloom varieties because they have so much flavor without being really overpowering and are perfect for eating raw, which is how I like to eat apples. Yeah, well, it's one of the, we've been exploring apples a lot on the network here because it is Cider Week in, in New York City. And um, I'm wondering, is cider available at any of the green markets? Yeah, it sure is. We have Eve Cidery, so they sell at Union Square on Fridays and Saturdays. And we have... Um, uh, Albert Wilclo had just, so I was going to talk about Wilclo Orchards. They are selling, um, Albert is the son of a sixth generation um, family farm, and he is, he just started his own company called Bad Seeds Cider, and he's selling at Fort Greene and Grand Army and starting at Greenpoint this weekend. So it's Cider Week this week, and if you haven't tried Albert Cider, be sure to pick some up because um, you can't base anything you've, you, any assumption you have on store-bought cider. It tastes completely different, so you've got to come try Albert's. And, and Wilco Orchards, they do more than just apples and cider, right? Yeah, they have been attending the market since 1984. They're a regular fixture in Brooklyn on Saturdays. Their entire family works on the farm, so you can find any one of the member of daughters, sons, grandchildren now at um, Fort Greene, Grand Army, and Brooklyn Borough Hall. Um, they, yeah, they started with orchard fruit, and now they have vegetables, fresh-cut flowers, plants, beef and pork, jams, baked goods, um, including their irresistible fruit pie muffins, my very favorite, most decadent market treat. Um, it's like your own mini pie with a very thick homemade crust and um, delicious filling made from their own fruit. And also, the Wilco Orchards invites customers up so people can visit the farm and do pick your own. And right now, of course, no better time to take a trek upstate, visit their orchard for some apple picking, cider donut eating, and fall foliage gazing. Oh, man. I think that's like one of the coolest things about um, multi-generational and multi-family farms is each kind of person in in the business usually takes on a role and really pursues a passion in in a different direction, whether it's, you know, growing the orchard or looking at expanding a bee program or, or baking. Um, it's always exciting to see the different directions people can take and how families really, I think, can come together to create an even more dynamic business um, a, as time goes by. 
So I would love to hear um, before we run out of time. What are are there any events? I mean, you guys always have so much going on. What should we be uh, on the lookout for this weekend? Well, next Wednesday is Food Day, which I, everybody should know by now. It's a day that we're going to celebrate local farms, sustainably grown and raised food, and having that food available throughout the city, which is. Of course, what Green Market is celebrating every day, so it's exciting that um, there are some other participants and we can really do a focus. And how we're going to do that this year is through the Big Apple Crunch. We're partnering with the Mayor's Office of Food Policy to help set the record for the most participants in an apple crunching event. And we're going to host apple crunching events at all of our Wednesday Green Market and Youth Markets. So people can really stop by throughout the day, grab an apple slice, and get counted, or join us at noon at any Green Market and Youth Market and we're going to do um, a kind of collective uh, apple crunching and we'll get all the numbers in and see if we can't beat the record, which I think is 230,000 apples eaten in a day and Toronto holds the record right now. Oh man, we can smash that. (laughs) I think we can do it too. (laughs) Um, Otherwise happening at markets um, over the next month, our fall festivals, Halloween parties, pumpkin decorating, apple cider donut eating contests, costume swaps, and apple pie cook-offs. So um, soon customers will be able to find free Thanksgiving recipe packets as well as a handout and info about where to purchase their Thanksgiving turkey. Um, just finishing that up, so it'll probably be at market in the next week or so, um, and customers can keep an eye out for those. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. So just to recap, um, I'm super excited to hear Peanuts uh, up at the uh, JNA Farm on 97th Street. And then, of course, uh, pumpkin squashes and other gourds. Check them out this week. And then lots of apple talk from cider to eating apples to the crunch herd around the world. If you want to learn more about uh, Grow NYC Green Market, uh, get info on the farmers, the market, or even find volunteer opportunities, you can visit them at www.grownyc.org or give them a follow on Twitter. In the meantime, you'll just have to stay tuned till the next week of uh, the Grow NYC Market Update. Great, thanks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.